0: Yeah, it's a it's well. It says leave studio. That's just to end it, I think. Don't leave studio.
1: Don't press the red button. I'm not going to press the red button.
0: It says recording. Yes, look for the dot on people's portraits. Everyone's recording. Okay, Ben. All
1: right, have fun.
0: See you later, Josie. Josie, is he nervous? He is. He's worried, especially since he knows I'm really I'm super scattered today, and I'm not listening to anything that anyone's saying to me. Like I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Fiction Between Friends, a podcast dedicated to books and book lovers like us. I'm Josephine Angelini. I'm Lauren Sanchez.
1: I'm Alyssa Hilfinger. And I'm Aileen Calderon. We're four childhood friends from the suburbs of Massachusetts. We've always loved to read almost as much as we love to talk to each other. We started this podcast
2: as a way to celebrate how a really good book can come into your life and change it. So if you're looking
1: for fun and engaging conversations about books, stick around. This is Fiction Between Friends, and we're glad you've joined us.
0: Welcome back. This is season two, episode nine. I'm Josephine Angelini and joining me are my dear friends, Aileen Calderon. Hello. And Alyssa Hilfinger. Hi. Lauren couldn't be with us today, but we have a very special guest sitting in for her. Another dear friend of mine, Barbara Stepanski. Hi, Barbara. Hi. Now, just to give everybody a quick background on Barbara, she is a writer on the TV show Outlander. She's the winner of the prestigious Nickel Fellowship in screenwriting. And she's the winner of the WGA Award for the movie Flint about the water scandal in Flint, Michigan. And um, I'm very impressed by her
1: resume. And I'm her friend. I think that's pretty amazing. <laughs> wow. I have an inferiority complex already. I know.
2: I have a, a macaroni necklace my kid made me for, like, happy <laughs> Awesome Mother's Day. Does that count as an award?
1: <laughs> I'm still clinging to my MVP trophy in basketball from high school. so as no, you should. Comes, you know, I'm doing
0: That was pretty awesome when you won it That MVP, was though. awesome. <laughs> yeah. That counts. So also, to give you a little bit more background on Barbara, she was originally born in Poland. and then when she was eight, I believe you were eight when your family had to move to Germany. And so you lived in Germany all through your high school years. Then you went to university in London. And then you finally made your way out west. Well, I think you were moving west constantly. Constantly. And this is the farthest west that you got. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. She writes in English and also German for Mm -hmm. an Austrian TV show called
3: Totenfrau, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's correct.
0: First of all, I'm just like... You write in German and you write in English. Okay.
3: I used to just write in German. My whole life, it was just German. And then it's not until I moved to America that that I kind of switched gears. So it's, it's weird to me that I'm writing in English now, but it just happened.
1: That's pretty impressive to be able to write like professionally in multiple languages. Because even people who are native English speakers and writers, most of them can't handle <laughs> writing professionally. So to be able to do it as your second language is pretty amazing. Oh, thank yeah. you.
0: I get hung up on just grammar alone in English I mean, people going through my stuff. They're like, no, what was she trying to say as
1: they're editing me? Aww. And Josie is a terrible speller.
0: Oh, the worst speller. But that's <laughs> I, I think I inherited that. I think it's like a genetic thing. It's
1: bred in me to be a bad speller.
0: You yeah. used to make fun of me all the time when I we know. were kids.
1: Well, because I was a great speller and you weren't. You were always very good. <laughs> I, was kind of a, I was kind of a jerk about it. Wait, Barbara, <laughs> can I can I put you on the spot and ask you to just kind of talk us through your your story, like when you first became interested in writing, how you first became a professional writer, like not your mm-hmm. entire life story, but sort of the the writing aspect of it. I, I
3: feel like I've always kind of done it. And when I learned how to write in, in school, I started to write my own stories. In, in elementary school, I started to rewrite The Wizard of Oz. I put in elements of Narnia. You fanficked Wizard of Oz and <laughs> Narnia. Totally did. That's, That's awesome. awesome. In elementary
2: I mean, school, nonetheless,
3: I feel like I was always writing. Like that was always something that I was just naturally doing. And then I did a lot of stuff. And in high school, that was my only outlet. I would constantly write uh, short stories and poems. Tried my fingers on novels, but all my novels were 120 pages. So that tells you something.
2: That's our kind of novel. I'm all over that. Really, like these shorter novels. uh, Yes.
1: Lauren would love that, especially. Wait, well, going back did... to high school, what were you like in high school? Oh, I was the nerdy
3: kid without, you know, a big friendship circle. Just a couple of friends, uh, all of them in drama club. Some some <laughs> video fanatics. We were all kind of
1: weird kids. And
0: She hung out with the AV club. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you guys were the drama nerds, though. Alyssa, yes. and Josie, and Lauren, who is it here? Oh, like, for sure. <laughs> yeah.
3: Movie night was the best night. I became a, I sort of became overworked as a teenager because I just liked t- movies so much. So I signed up for everything. I was like a projectionist. I signed up for drama club. I signed up for photography club. I did the school paper. So kind of every aspect of filmmaking, I wanted to learn something about and I got really busy.
1: That's so interesting. So you were always interested in writing, but connected to movies and tv shows it wasn't necessarily yeah. writing novels
3: yeah i didn't think of i was always writing but i didn't think of it as a as a profession i i, I saw filmmaking as a something that i wanted to do and you know i was joking about the 120 page novels because that's the that's the length of a screenplay like uh, apparently my brain works in 120 minutes mm. <laughs> so 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 all the all the screenplays that i write now are now longer than that and on page 10 you have your inciting incident
1: yeah yes <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we do. So Um, what did you first get paid for? What was your first professional writing job?
3: That's a good question. I think probably coming out of film school, out of AFI, I got paid for rewriting this indie movie called Hurt, which got me into the WGA.
2: Oh, is that Writers Guild? It's the Guild?
3: Writers Guild of Maybe. America. Yeah, that's the Writers Guild. Okay. So I think that was my first job. Great I didn't insurance. didn't pay much, but <laughs> yes, great insurance. <laughs> Are you
1: saying that sarcastically or seriously? No, no, no. everybody
0: wants the WGA health insurance. Like that's, that's why you want to join the WGA. It's like oh, wow. you want that health insurance. It's like the Cadillac yeah. of health insurance. It's great. It's, it's awesome. It says so much about America. But Barbara's also a director, so she's mm-hmm. a filmmaker.
2: How do you pick the projects that you want to direct?
3: Um, at the beginning, I just was really hungry and I didn't think of myself as a writer. I just thought of myself as, as a director coming out of film school. So I wanted to direct other people's scripts and I picked the ones that were darker. I wanted to do horror or thriller because I had kind of heard this theory that it's easier to move into bigger budgets. If Europe can kind of visually hold tension and show that you can move a camera in in the right way. And I think like comedies and romantic comedies didn't give you that visual scope. And so I wanted to play in this tension playground and learn more about that. So I, I started in this whole horror genre, did three of those features, and then I switched careers. So then I became, I won the Nickel Fellowship and it, it really changed my trajectory. Is
1: that what you wanted to do? Or did your career just kind of push you in that direction?
3: Well, I wanted to write screenplays that that were maybe not that were more personal to me and projects that I could curate from the ground. Up and I came up with the story, I wrote it, and suddenly it wins all these awards, and uh it just kind of reinvented oh, but me. Sugar
0: sugar is no, it's not it's not, it's life, not autobiographical <laughs> at all,
3: but but it's so I I've, I've of, read
0: I've read the screenplay that she won the nickel fellowship for, and dude, it is dark, it is dark and creepy, <laughs> and like that is
3: wait, what, what is what is the nickel fellowship? It's a it's a screenplay competition given through the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences. So the same people that give out Oscars. Also give out five of these fellowships per year. It's a wonderful family. It's like, you know, everyone aspires to this fellowship because it opens a lot of doors and gives you the freedom to write for a whole year because they pay for it. It's very coveted
1: over here. So that's that's when you get to start meeting like fancy people and yeah.
2: Oh, I don't know about Um, that. But but were you always drawn? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh well, my I'm I'm fixated on the horror piece because I cannot think of anything worse. So, (laughs) so.
1: (laughs) Barbara, in case in case in case you don't know, Alyssa reads all of her books backwards. She starts. (laughs) She needs to know how it ends because she does not like surprises. She has to know how it ends, and then she'll go back and read it. So horror, I think, it was worst nightmare. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible.
2: Um, were you always drawn to horror? Yeah,
3: yes. It was weird. I was in a weird period in my life. I think everything changed after I had my kid too. But in the in my twenties, I was in this weird period where movies didn't make me feel much anymore, and I only watched horror movies because they were the only films that that elicited some sort of emotional response in me. And and you know, we're talking not like gore stuff. Like no, I I don't like torture porn. But I, I movies that scared me or that made me feel this creepy, growing fear inside. And as we were like drawing it out, I watched a lot of those because they made me they viscerally made me react to it. And that's what I wanted.
1: What's your favorite horror movie?
3: Alien. Oh, I love Alien. That's just such a good movie. Yeah. It's such I a mean, I guess
1: movie. it is horror, but is that's that the just monster? Horror?
3: It's, a, it's it's a monster in the house. Kind of movie
1: Sigourney Weaver, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I yeah. reference that a lot when I was pregnant because I was like, it's like the aliens in my belly, and it's gonna come <laughs> out at some point. <laughs> I legitimately, I think it's the most I've ever thought about that movie was being pregnant. I'm like, yeah, that's what it's like—the monster inside you. Well,
3: it's it's funny too because the, the alien lives in this mind space a little bit. Of course, it's gory. There's there's some of these elements, but the, I don't think they had as much of a budget as then they had later. And so they couldn't show much. Everything's really dark and Dripping things and, mm-hmm. and 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 noise and sound like rattling sound chains, and like and so I think I I learned a lot from like showing less because as soon as I saw a lot of the alien creatures later in, the, in two and three and four and five, it's just it's, I kind of seemed to lose respect for the beast.
1: That's because I guess it, it ends up leaving a lot to your imagination. Like it just like what isn't there is almost more scary than what's in front mm-hmm. of you. And it's it's interesting that it was because of the budget that they were forced to do that. But sometimes having a tight budget works in your favor right
2: yeah do you have a particular sense that you feel heightens the the emotional response whether it's visual or whether it's sound or you know sort of emotionally eliciting device that you can use to enhance a horror (laughs) situation
3: some somewhere i've read this and i've used it a lot in my films, and i think it's probably the most effectful thing is to when you've set up something in the story or or in the plot that this is probably going to happen to be as slow as humanly possible to a point where your audience is almost getting bored and just as they're getting bored you know do something
1: so does not like this at all (laughs) so that was that has been
3: working really well for me and so the the sort of like drawing it out drawing something out as long as possible because people know like they know something's going to happen but they don't know when and they don't know how and so that's been fun to play with wait before we go
1: on to the book part, oh, can we okay. talk about Outlander? Yeah, sure. I, think we, I think we need to talk about that. Because honestly, I've heard, I had heard of the show and I've been binging so much stuff, I hadn't made it to it, but I watched the first couple of episodes and got sucked in. Oh, nice. How did you end up writing for Outlander and what has that been like?
3: Oh, that was a, a really lucky strike. Uh, they were looking for writers in 2018 for season five. Um, because I, I guess a lot of the people were leaving the room and they needed to like really replace a bunch, like four or so. And my agent at the time knew that I was looking to staff on a TV show. And she just said, you know, Outlander is looking, would you be interested? And for me, this is such a dream show because it has uh, the the time travel, the sort of fantasy element. It has Second World War stuff. It has the 18th century. I mean, Scotland, everything. It's romance the the unconditional love uh that we live for that's it's it's just so perfect and you know the costumes everything so i really wanted to do it and interviewed you know it's a whole submission process they submit people then the executive producers have to read your scripts they have to see, like, if this is a good fit, then they have to do one interview, number
1: one, then they do two more interviews, and then you either get the job or you don't. And then they do it. Wait, so when they, when they, when they I, get, I get them looking at things that you've written, but what are they in the interview? Like, is it a writer's room that you're part of? Are they seeing if your personality is adding something to the room that's missing or like what are they looking for in the interviews so that seems like an interesting part of the process
3: yeah it's, it's kind of a one-on-one where they have to gauge if you understand what the show's about if you know what your sort of how your behavior is if you could, could be a good fit i mean you could be talking about anything and just kind of see if the personality fits it's a little bit of a leap of faith every single time because we don't do a fake writer's room situation they'll hire you and then you start the writer's room and then it better work. Work. Like, wait oh so what's God. it like
1: what is a writer's room like because that's that sounds terrifying like being just being thrown into a room with other writers and having to pitch your ideas with a bunch of people you don't know and Gary. it sounds
3: terrifying but it's it's really the best it's being in a room with like eight other people that are super smart and uh, love stories and we're all here on this journey to the same purpose of breaking the show that's what we call it when we, we break a season in about 20 odd weeks or so. And the showrunner sets the tone. They kind of sit in the room. We talk a lot about sort of the overall goal that he or she has.
1: So they come in with like a vision of like where where the story is going to go for each episode and for the whole season? Well,
3: mostly for the, the whole season. Sort of- we kind of, because Outlander so is an adaptation too. So we, we have Diana Gabaldon's book's to work off of. And those are long books. So
2: not everything makes it into the show. (laughs) So, yeah. So my question was going to be about tone, because if you you said, you know, they were looking for maybe like four new writers. But then how do you have continuity of of tone in the storytelling if you have different voices telling the story? Because everyone you're all trying to tell the same story if you're trying to adapt Mm -hmm. something from a book. But I assume that each person has something different to bring. And you might see it through a different lens. And so, yeah, yeah. but uh, I mean, are there any times where people are like, no, that's not kind of sometimes?
3: Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot. We basically it's, it's now because of the pandemic. Writer's room are like this. It's like a Zoom space where a lot of the ideas are just being bounced off of each other. And so we talk a lot. For, for most of our days, we're just constantly talking through the arcs and the stories up until something makes it to the board. And then we start writing down what sticks. And we talk about the book a lot. And we try to find the, the scenes that stand out to us, the scenes that we know that the fans love. It is amazing that that it does come out all being
0: one show, because there's different directors for every episode. So there's different writers for everything. It's just amazing that it all, that it does feel the same. Like, it feels like you're telling the same story, you know? Yeah, I, I get what Alyssa's saying. It is really hard when you see it. I know everybody's sort of in a writer's room. You talk about everything that's going to happen in your the episode that you're writing, but then you still have to go home and write it and write the dialogue that makes sense for that character.
3: Yeah, but on a you show know? like Outlander, like, you have a million screenplays that have been written prior to me starting. So I started in season five, but there's a lot of screenplays that you need to study. You need to read. You need to know the tone yeah. of the show And so, really, what you're starting to do is adapt to that voice. I don't speak Scottish either. (laughs) I have to look at my cheat sheet and kind of figure out like where, which words are Scottish words. I need to change that. And um, and then how are they doing action description? I'm a kind of short scene writer and Outlander likes longer scenes. So that was something I had to adapt to where I had to draw them out a little bit more because I tend to be brief. And that's not the show. The show likes to live in talking it out and discussing things.
2: What's your way of drawing it out? Is that going to be dialogue and character driven or do you tend to add more action sequences and physicality oh we like dialogue and why are you laughing character. at me i'm it? laughing
0: because i know barbara would barbara would want to write action 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 like <laughs> have them say as little as possible and have as much happen in the scene as possible but that's not out outland or like they no. talk it out
3: yeah, <laughs> so she's... yeah. I, I mean it's it's sort of like you have to adjust your style so you have to And and that's on any show. I think you know you have to try and adjust your style, and the showrunner still will go in and fix things that he or she thinks needs to be fixed. So it's not it's not uncommon to be rewritten. Although I feel like you know it gets less and less the more you write for the show.
1: So there's the writer room where you're like tossing around ideas and talking about the direction of the episode, and then is one writer in charge of actually like putting it to paper and actually writing, or do different people take different scenes. How does that work?
3: No, no, you get an episode. You basically get assigned an episode at some point. Either the either you've expressed a lot of passion for something or it just kind of works out that way. But the showrunner will at some point say, okay, Barbara, go off and write four. And then I I get the beat sheet that we've broken on the board and I go and write it. And
1: I have two weeks to write it.
3: Which then it's like the fun part too. Is, because is the beat sheet
1: like the outline?
3: A little bit, but it's so it's just it's, it's, it's just just scene by scene description that we've done in terms of how this episode needs to progress and where it needs to start, where it needs to end, and then you can kind of go into scenes and embellish things as you see fit. Sometimes that'll work, sometimes it won't. But I I remember my first the, for the first episode I got one of the beats was. The the two female characters, Brianna and Marcelie, have a scene in the kitchen. Bri is really upset because she thought she had conjured up this, uh, you know, her rapist coming after her baby. And the other person is supposed to comfort her. And I was like, I was digging into the other person, Marcelie's into her background story and I found, you know, stuff out about her father and that he was really violent to her and her children. And I kind of had this in my back pocket uh, that Marsali was going to say that she killed her father, even though she hadn't. But it's just that she's making a point that just because she's wishing that her father was dead doesn't mean she did it. And so that was sort of something I came up with when I was writing that scene. And it wasn't something that we had discussed in the room. All that was on the beat sheet was this is they're talking about this conjuring up thing. Wow. So it's-
1: and how how do you stay in the voice of the different characters? Because yeah, kind of to Alyssa's earlier point, like just having different writers come in and write different episodes. But obviously there needs to be consistency with the characters from episode to episode. Is that are you just studying previous episodes and watching old episodes to make sure you're consistent?
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: One yes. last question. Do you have a favorite character or favorite character to write for?
3: I, I, I really love Is that writing for. a fair for, question. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I, I actually, in season six, got to write for uh, Lord John Gray for the first time, and I weirdly enjoyed that. I, I had a really easy time writing Lord John Gray. Uh, and and he, he speaks very flowery, very sort of subtextual British. And I had so much fun writing him. <laughs> I think he's become my favorite <laughs> characters for this.
0: Okay. So let's talk about the book that you brought in The
3: Forgotten
0: Garden by Kate Morton. I have this one, I got it from the library. I have it Elizabeth. on my Kindle. I yes. really enjoyed this book.
1: Wait, actually, Josie, will you will you give a quick summary of
0: the book? I would say even like oh. read the, la- the back of it. You know what? I'm going to read the back of it. A tiny girl is abandoned on a ship headed for Australia in 1913. Right there, you almost had me lost. Child endangered. I was like, I don't know if I can handle this, but we got through it and it wasn't as horrible <laughs> as I thought it was going to be. Like as soon as I see a kid, like a small four-year-old kid. Abandoned. I'm like, hell no, I can't do that, but I did it. I pushed through. Yeah. She arrives completely alone with nothing but a small suitcase containing a few clothes and a single book, a beautiful volume of fairy tales. She is taken in by the dock master and his wife and raised as their own. On her 21st birthday, they tell her the truth. And with her sense of self shattered and very little to go on, Nell starts out to trace her real identity. Her quest leads her to Blackhurst Manor on the Cornish coast and the secret of the doomed Montrachet family. But it is not until her granddaughter, Cassandra, takes up the search after Nell's death that all the pieces of the puzzle are assembled. It's one mystery that is taken up by two subsequent generations. So it's a mystery that started in like Jack the Ripper, London, then gets moved to Australia, and then is brought back to England um, in the Cornish coast, Mm -hmm. this creepy old castle is how I saw it, like this creepy old manor, in 2005. First, I was cursing you. Like when I was about, see where this bookmark is? Like about mm-hmm. about a quarter of the mm-hmm. way through the book. I was like, dang you, Barbara, and the horse you rode in <laughs> on. Don't you realize how long this book is? But then I've really got into it. And it was just such a page turner. And I wasn't expecting that mm-hmm. at all. Like I was... I was really surprised. There was there was, and it's not, not, not the
2: it... kind of book that you can read the last few pages and because <laughs> no. we know you don't to any <laughs> sense of who the characters are and what's going on. So you're forced <laughs> to start at the beginning. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I can't cheat. Yeah. <laughs> no, this book was so good. I couldn't. I this morning I was on page hundred and something. I finished it today. I mean, I I wow. eagerly spent. The whole day, just reading. I also don't have small children to be looking after. um yeah, your kids are big it i It's such a good I love this book. It's the kind of book that I want to go back and read again. Um, yeah. and the whole time I'm reading it in my head i'm I'm questioning how would I envision seeing this on a screen, and, yeah, what characters who like Linus? Mm-hmm. Got to talk about Linus. Oh, Linus go psycho! Wow,
0: we, we were just <laughs> and, talking and about Linus the other day.
1: So we much missed. room to open up his story. I I confess, I've only made it seventy percent of the way through. I'll blame Uh-oh. it on my small child because I yes. feel like I had an opening to blame it on my small child. <laughs> yes. Um, I was starting to get some flowers in the attic vibes when I. Um, I had know. To I put kept waiting down. for I was like, that. Oh, and I didn't you want to have to put it down. But I got whiplash at first reading it because it does mm-hmm. the thing where it goes from character to character and time frame to time frame, which I feel like every book I read does this now. This one I felt like it was a little hard to follow at first because yes. there so really? many different characters. Yeah, a hundred percent. So many different ways of telling the story. And then there were like the fairy tale tales that Eliza would write, you know, and those would be interwoven in there. Like yeah. it was just a lot. But also like what Elizabeth was saying, I was like, if you were going to turn this into a series, like, do you still do, do you tell it from all those perspectives? Are you flashing back or do you tell it more chronologically? Like, I know. How do you do that?
0: Barbara, how would you how would you run this writers' room? How would you run it, Barbara, if you were the showrunner? How would Let's you do, do it? Let's do it. Let's
3: run it for like half an hour. Well, first of all, my <laughs> my mission was to find you guys a book that can be adapted, and you know, it's it's one of my favorite books, but it's not my favorite book. My favorite book is Umberto Eco's Focals Pendulum, but I don't want to adapt it. Uh, this was a book that I had read a while ago, and I always thought it would make a really great, complete kind of mini series. And I actually reread it again for this podcast, so it's fresh in my mind. But and we're talking in sort of the 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 haunting of Bly Manor type of anthology yeah. not not an anthology but like cuz it has a like that standalone. creepy haunted
0: house thing
3: yes and so i felt that this would be a very similar kind of yeah the haunting of Bly Manor which just came out it's on netflix it it's less scary than than what it sounds like but this book has so much to offer and so much that we we talk we can mine from we have we have the three generations that are all interconnected which is awesome we have a sort of going theme of mother daughter relationships going through it there's all the cool stuff that i love about books and, and stories which is the gothic elements V.C. Andrews came up mm-hmm, and, you know, Flowers in the Attic was also one of my favorite books growing up. And so, OK,
1: you are dark. Yeah. <laughs> Very dark. <laughs> I, we we I, did that for an earlier episode because it had been one of my favorite books growing up. And then reading it as an adult, I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> like, there's a lot going on in here. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. A lot. There's some there's some elements of that. And I love Victorian England. I lived in London for, for... I love the Jack the Ripper element. Yeah. I love
0: how it's that, that it is. That's And I love that so, gothic element. Like, the she want like, she was, this, Eliza was aspiring to be an orange seller. And it has, like, almost that Charles Dickens feel mm-hmm. where it's like the kids yes. are forced into labor. And then you have and the a woman in and the chimney. 2005. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, her,
2: her brother Sammy is
0: a chimney sweep. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, there's something about it that's so... But it's like, there's yeah. that that wonderful world, but there's also 2005 modern woman, you know, the grandchild of, I, I felt, you said you got whiplash. Maybe I'm just used to going from character to character because I do that a lot in my books too. I felt like when I was in a different time zone, I never got it twisted. Like I was always, I knew when I was and who I was with. So I always felt like the only time I was ever confused was in one of the original chapters when... She was talking about her mother, but I was like, who are all these people? She introduces like five mm-hmm. people in one paragraph. And I went, I would have handled that differently. But apart from that, <laughs> when, when people were speaking, I understood what time I was in. Maybe it was because it was like 1975, which is so distinct from 2005, which is right. definitely different from turn of yeah. the century, you know?
3: And I will, say, I, I will say that I do not own the rights to this. This is a pie in the sky conversation. I don't I've never considered Yeah, this is just like a what if this this is this is a total what if. If anyone is listening, I I I wants to hire me to do it, <laughs> sure. But it's uh it's not, you know, it's it's not a, a cheap project because it does span a right. lot of period piece elements. And so to to make this into sort of the perfect shiny mini-series that would require a budget. And so Mm. It's not it's not an easy undertaking. So this is just a sort of dream world. Like, what would you do with a book like this? I I think there's a lot that that stays as is, but it's how these stories Mm -hmm. are interweaved that would have to be figured out. And kind of what I love about the book is how the information is doled out. And so the mm-hmm. the first yes the the pacing is so good. Yeah, so the first order would be to figure out exactly when these all these cliffhangers come in and to build it like a murder mystery almost. That's that it it is essentially we figure out at the end. But who's finding out what and how these elements Full and I and
1: you you said you'd do this as a mini series. I feel like mini series, limited series are huge limited. right now. Yeah. Like everybody mm-hmm. needs to turn something into like nine episodes or whatever. Why a, a series and not like a movie? Like what is it about it that? Oh, so I too? feel
3: like well, so much would get lost in a movie. It's too it's too short. I couldn't get into Nell's point of view at all in the movie. Mm-hmm. It would all have to be Cassie and maybe some flashbacks to Eliza. And so it's 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 kind of I actually like these three women and how that's all inter interconnected. And I think it would make like a perfect eight to ten episode series, and then it would be over because all the mysteries mm. are solved at the end of that. It also gives you more scope to place him with some of the visual elements that are hinted at in the book. The fairy tales, the ghosts that people see. Mm -hmm. What's the one ghost that we keep seeing? So so Eliza sees Sammy. I think Nell sees uh, Eliza. I think you know that's that these kind of elements that that are around and the corners hotelier, aren't
0: really the hotelier Sorry. sees Rose, mm-hmm. so it's Rose becomes her
3: ghost. Do you remember the
0: woman? What's her name? That she was the a keys. romance writer, and then she bought the manor and she Bennett, turned it into a hotel
2: because uh, her last Julia, name was Bennett. Julia. Julia, Julia yes, yes, Bennett. Julie, and I was like, hmm, Bennett's sister. Bennett's <laughs> sister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so so, so Chelsea Rose. So that's
1: interesting too, because if you start focusing on the ghosts and the haunting, it becomes it becomes very eerie and mm -hmm. kind of. It is.
2: I was going to say there's there would need to be the development of caring for these characters. The characters would have to become sympathetic in order for people to be invested in them. And some of them do not have sympathetic qualities until you really start to get to know a little bit above about their backstory. Mm -hmm. You know, even even Rose's mom, once you realize what's driving her facade, you know, you start to feel sympathy for her. Linus, I think you realize his grief is just so overwhelming, but he's also a psychopath. Yeah, that guy's <laughs> really creepy. And, and I can't figure out the balance. I can't figure out if they were trying to lean into him being a psychopath or him being so twisted from grief that he he doesn't really resemble a functional man anymore. And I well, think I'm leaning more towards yeah. just psychopath.
3: Oh, he's, he's, but he's been born that way. Like he's this described as a a child that has these issues that, that we associate with psychopaths mm-hmm. and sociopaths. And it's really this little sister that he develops a relationship with that, that he feels is the only person that understands him. So right. uh, also there is something that's, you know, in the book, she just takes off with the sailor. In the series, is there a way to motivate her escape into poverty a little bit more.
2: Well, I thought that scene in the dark room with her and her brother, when, you know, she says, I, you know, I love the sailor. Can you help me? And then when he creates the accident, I mean, for someone who supposedly loves his sister so much, he's wretched. Well,
1: he's he's broken from the minute you meet him. You know, his body is defigured. He's mistreated by his parents. But there's never a moment where. And even though you understand that's his story, there's never a moment when you see him being kind or likable to anyone. He's just kind yep. of monstrous from the beginning. Like the- he's a very one dimensional character. But one of the things that was interesting about the book is it's so female driven, like there are all these strong female characters. And then there happen to be men, but it's really all about Mm -hmm. the women like they're Mm -hmm. they're the interesting ones. They're the ones that you care about. I think maybe what gave me whiplash when I first started reading is I didn't I felt like I needed one character who was my main character whose storyline I was following. And I was immediately introduced to all these different characters, and I was like, wait, who's the threat? Who am I staying with? And I guess Cassandra is sort of the main focus, because she's the most modern one. Like, I feel like I need someone to be with.
3: Yeah, I I think Cassandra would need to be that person. Cassie is probably the closest one to a heroine, like somebody who's really, because she finds the closure at the end, she finds out the secret. So it's really about working Mm -hmm. her character more. And I kind of like this idea of this failed artist that works in her grandma's antique shop. All these people are very artistically Mm -hmm. inclined and to her, she just has given up on everything and has given up on, on on her art and on her life and how that's the arc. Like she want, she needs to come full circle at the end and kind of find some light in all of that through these stories and how she needs to stop repeating that pattern. But she's
0: also the one who breaks the curse. Stop repeating the pattern. Yeah, she's the one who sort of breaks the curse too. Like this mother-daughter inherited horror that comes with a Linus. You know what I mean? It's like Linus is sort of, <laughs> he like <laughs> haunts eliza but he also haunted georgina georgiana her mother and then you know you see him start to go for baby Nell, like he's going to make her his poupee, his little doll and yeah. nell gets away but it's sort of like the only the first the person who really breaks this cycle of this mother-daughter inherited yuck
1: is is cassandra <laughs> generational trauma generational
2: yeah. trauma but but it also which i think why her mom leslie to have the opportunity yeah. to redeem herself would be really interesting oh, that'd be good
0: to bring that in at the end that cassandra and leslie sort of heal that rift between them yeah because it's like true. leslie had her and then 10 years later she has other kids And Nell notices that, uh, and Cassandra notices that the second time around, Leslie actually, you know, did a good job as a mom, but not with her. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like, oh, yeah, I completely forgot about Leslie. Like, she's a mom that's totally left out of this. She's like one of the line of women, you know, like that beautiful mess up woman who can't get her life together. But she does good with her second round of kids. It's just not with Cassandra.
1: There are a lot of awful mothers in this book. Yeah, we were talking about that. Mm -hmm. It's like
0: a bad, it's like all about bad mothering. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. Cool. But
0: here's the thing. That's another thing that really struck me uh, around the time that Hattie's character, get Hattie Swindall gets reintroduced in 1975. And she was that little girl that lived um, mm-hmm. the baby when Eliza was a small child and Georgiana first rented from her mother. It was her lifetime and her being this old woman living in 1975, but had lived through those that Jack the Ripper era. That's when I really went, this is nuts. Like how much the world changed from turn of the century, just over the course Mm -hmm. of Harriet Swindell's lifetime in those 75 years. So she was born around 1900 and then it's in 1975. The world changed more then than it has since 1975. Like if I think about like the last 45 years, it's not as 47 years now. It's not that it hasn't changed that much, but from 1900s like even the clothes that they wore to 1975 like but
3: can't you just see that that screen that that doorway that where where it morphs from that age it morphs into like you you could do the morphs in every scene it would be beautiful to to do these effects where you show this this passage of time but it's kind of how the past even though everything's changed, how the past still guides everything that these characters do. And so that's a big it's a big kind of theme that goes through this book is how
1: it keeps it's all haunted it keeps being They're the lighthouse. Haunted. You, you can't escape haunted. your past. Yeah. Barbara, I want you to turn this into a series. You no, know, I want to do it, too. <laughs> uh,
2: how do we how do we make that happen? I want to see it now. <laughs> Can we start a petition? Who do we call? Well, I have I have a question about the format of the book. Yeah, the format. There's a, a part that I feel a little bit like I should understand and I'm kind of embarrassed to ask, but it's divided into three sections. And it, you know, I got to the end of a section and it said part two, you know, and then there's a part three. What are the parts? Yeah. <laughs> because it's not like it's one character and then part two is another character
1: and part three is a different one. There's all these overlaps. And, and they so, just kind of pick up where they left off. It's not a huge right. leap in time or anything.
2: Now, granted, I have not had a lot of time to think about this book because I just finished it. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure
3: part two starts when, when um, Rose goes off to get me and Nathaniel enters the picture. I, I wouldn't. Oh, I know, as a, yeah. If I was to adapt this, I wouldn't worry about the parts at all, because I think the childhood Eliza would be yeah. brief. And it's really what's interesting is teen Mm. Eliza with Rose and how that relationship developed and and then have Nathaniel come into into this world. So I think it's about stages in in Eliza's life that makes part one, two and three uh, and not so much in Cassandra's and
1: Nell's, ironically. Right. I mean, this book does seem like it's begging to be made into a show right now. It's a period piece. It has strong female characters with interesting relationships. I mean, it's I feel like even those two things alone, like everybody loves that right now. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's got like
3: it's got the British and the Australian thing. And, you know, American. it's very I mean, it's very I think maybe 20 years ago, we would have been like, well, does it have to be Australia? But in this day and age of very international filmmaking, I think like, well, why not? Why can't it be Australia? It's the other side of the world. It makes Mm. perfect sense. So it's it's sort of um, it really spans oceans, too, on top of times. And I think it's very poetic.
1: Can we switch gears and talk about how Barbara is adapting one of your books, Josie? Because I feel oh, like you're God. not going to bring that up. So I'm, I'm not going to bring that, that up. Right. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Barbara, you're adapting one of Josie's books, right? How did this come to be? Well, first, I'm
3: a big fan of Josie's writing. I think Josie has this knack for plotting really smartly and and putting a lot into it, which is I always laugh at that. I'm like, that could have been three books. <laughs> what you just did in maybe a few chapters. <laughs> um, because, you know, I, I read a lot of stuff and a lot of uh, books usually just like to drag things out. Um, Josie's not like that. Her books really move. And so I'm I'm just a fan. I, I like to read her books a lot. And I latched onto to um, What You Found in the Woods, which is a teen thriller. Because I love thrillers and it has a lot of great twists and turns,
2: right? It's a little bit dark.
3: It's yeah. a little bit dark. it has uh, it has some some sort of fantastical elements, but not really. like they're more in in the form mm-hmm. of of uh, medication and 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 what's going on with the mind and themes of that are really current today, which is, you know, psyche (laughs) like you know what is going on what is real mental in your mind and and what is not mental illness yep and i thought that also the world that because she's a world builder and i'm more of a character person i write characters really well i'm not that you know i don't world the worlds i do are, are usually grounded in reality whereas josie does a whole landscape and canvas for somebody like me to work off of. And so there's a whole world that I I thought lies also behind this small town that she set her characters in. And that yeah. can be adapted into a much bigger picture. So I kind of always pitch this as Euphoria meets Twin Peaks and Ooh, really kind of build I
1: like out nice.
3: this <laughs> <laughs> this town and how it operates and sort of the darkness that lurks underneath uh, this facade of perfect summer town. So I, I'm raving to so go. How, how does it work? Did, did it.
1: Josie approach you or no,
3: oh, I approached her, I think.
0: She just, she had a really great idea about, you know, how she was like, well, the whole stuff that happened to her and the psych ward, she's like that, she's like, you do it in like two, like three or four sections. She was like, that's a year. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know that. Like, oh, I love that idea. So it was just, she just had such a great take on it that it was no, it was just like a no brainer. It's like, Barbara is so perfect for this. So yeah.
1: So how does the whole process work? Because Alyssa and I don't understand any of this. Like, how does it work when you would mm-hmm. decide to adapt a book? Does, do you just go and write it and then start pitching it to people, or do you get well, people kind of, first? Like, what's what's the process from the beginning?
3: You do what we just did. Well, uh, about the the Forgotten Garden, and you kind of come up with ideas and you you create a, an overview of what the show is, what it. You know, what, how you would interweave it, how you would do it. And, you know, you come up with that, and you create a document that reflects those thoughts and, and bring everyone on the same page. I then pitch it to my manager, see if, if that sticks and if, and he was just as enth- enthusiastic about the material. So then we, we go on to find producers. And that's, that's kind of how it works with, with TV shows. But, the pandemic kind of put a damper on things lately, so yeah. we're just waiting yeah. on the oh, right yeah. moment.
1: So, have you yeah. pitched it to anyone yet, or no, not yet, that's, not yet. That's what you're waiting for. Timing. We're waiting for timing. So, Josie, how precious are you about your books? Because obviously, you write them and you have a vision in your head, and it must yeah. be sort of mm. challenging to see someone else take because adaptation. It always ends up changing and evolving. You know, it becomes oh, yeah. something different than what it was originally intended. Like, are you okay with someone? Just taking it and running with it? Do you like to stay involved? Do you have strong opinions about certain things that need to be a certain way? With Barbara, I'd be totally cool with
0: her doing what she needed to do with it just because I I, I know because she knows she understands me and we're friends and she gets the world and I know her taste. So I know that it's not going to be like this weird ass thing that she'd come back to. And I'd be like, that's, ho- that's not the tone of the book at all.
2: <laughs> that's not who they no, are.
0: That's not it. <laughs> I mean, I think you always want to be involved because you always want to make sure that, that the people who like your books, they like the spirit of the books. But in terms of changing what happens or what goes down, I'm not, I don't think I'm that precious about it because the book's written. It's like, you want to know what i I had my say you know like you can go read the Mm -hmm. book and and i think it's more you have to allow other artists to take it and make it their own too because this wouldn't be interesting for barbara to do if she was just copying right out of a book i mean i i would want her to have the creative freedom to you know explore her ideas of where to go with it and what to what to do next
2: See, I think that's really interesting to hear you say that as the person who created this form of art, who's now putting it forward to be reinterpreted and represented in a different medium. Whereas from an audience point of view, I know exactly what the characters look like in the (laughs) book that I read. And that's what I want to see. And so I I, like I wonder if it's even a, a more difficult sell to the audience than it is necessarily to the author who who you're adapting I, it from because we are we as an audience are so opinionated people hate people hate
1: when movies deviate too much from the book if you've read the book do. first you want to see the book translated right. exactly in a movie actually, yeah. so barbara do you yeah. like when you're doing something like this how much of it is like what you feel passionate about and how you think it should be interpreted versus what you think the author wants versus what you think an audience wants? Are you balancing all of that? Or do you just go in and you're like, this is what I believe, this is what it should be? There's I mean, so many opinions to take into account. This Yeah, bad. the the problem is that <laughs> it, would, it, can, it? it can really drive you crazy.
3: So you just hope that you're on the same page. With mm-hmm. your take and how you would interpret it with everyone else. Like, I don't think Josie would give it her material to people if she hears a take and it's like, wait, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. So then, then it doesn't make sense. And they're for all in cat suits.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you want to have, you, you want to like, have as much. Hell?
3: You want to have all these conversations so that everyone is on the same page of what is going on, and I think taste is a big factor. That you you like the same movies, even you like the same stuff. You look like similar things. You 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 hated this part of this movie, but you like. I have all these conversations with producers so that we know each other's tastes levels. I feel like directors often are hired for taste, not so much like, you know, clearly somebody like Speedwork has a different taste than, you know, say, uh, Scorsese. They have different, different palettes. And so that's, and I know my body of work is still growing, but hopefully then. That will determine what comes next. It's just like my my taste is very specific. I can't really put it into words. It's I like I, I love young love and, and, and yeah, it's a particular it's a,
2: style.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say ultimately it's like everything and le- it comes down to trust and relationships. You know, Mm -hmm. like you have to like and trust the people that you work with. And especially when you're creating a work of art and you're handing it over to them, you have to feel comfortable that they're going to do something good with it, even if it's not your exact vision, that you Mm -hmm. trust their vision for whatever it'll become. Yeah, But
0: I think it's so true. Like, Alyssa, you're so right about the fans actually being scarier than the authors, I think, especially like with Outlander. Mm -hmm. Outlander fans, people who love Diana Gabaldon, they will cut you like if you mess up. (laughs) Like,
1: yeah, <laughs> their stuff. Does the Outlander <laughs> author is she still involved at all, or is it like she just kind of sold her soul and she's oh no, she at is at mercy of whatever.
3: No, no, Diana's happens. still involved. She reads so all. She, the she still has a say. Uh, she still has a veto oh, power. Wow. Um, she she has a say. She reads the oh, books wow. and she also writes episodes. She's written episodes in season five. I think she's getting something in season seven. I don't know, but she's she's very much still overlooking. everything racing. And she understands that sometimes we have to do changes. So this this
0: was definitely a new kind of episode for us. Um, thank <laughs> you so much, Barbara, for coming in and talking with yes, our funny thank little you. podcast. I no,
2: it was fun. Thanks for this having me. This was a me. great book.
0: Good. Thank you for suggesting it. <laughs> yes, I'm so glad you made me read this giant book. <laughs> I really enjoyed it.
2: I can't wait to watch. It might it. have. I know this might have been bigger than the Stephen King book Aileen had me it's read. Pretty close. I think it was pretty close.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, I'm so honored to be have been part of Fiction Between Friends. Obviously, I'm a big fan. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Barbara. Thank you so much for coming in and being our first guest. That was great. <laughs> okay, everyone. Thanks so much. All right. Thank Have you. Have a nice
1: night,
2: ladies.
0: All
1: right. Okay. Bye. Okay. Thank you, Barbara.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Barbara. <laughs> Thanks meeting
2: you. Bye, everyone. Bye.
0: You've been listening to Fiction Between Friends. To find the show notes for this episode, or to subscribe and get new episodes delivered automatically, visit fictionbetweenfriends.com. Also, if you happen to have a moment and you've liked what you've heard, please help support our podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. We would be immensely grateful. Thank you for listening.